0: That. The Mortal Immortal, a tale by Mary Shelley. July 16th, 1833. This is a memorable anniversary for me. On it, I complete my 323rd year. Am I then immortal? This is a question which I have asked myself by day and night for now 303 years, and yet cannot answer it. I detected a grey hair amidst my brown locks this very day. That surely signifies decay. Yet it may have remained concealed there for 300 years. I will tell my story and so contrive to pass some few hours of a long eternity. All the world has heard of Cornelius Agrippa. His memory is as immortal as his arts have made me. All the world has also heard of his scholar, who, unawares, raised the foul fiend during his master's absence and was destroyed by him. The report, true or false, of this accident was attended with many inconveniences to the renowned philosopher, All his scholars at once deserted him. Experiment after experiment failed, because one pair of hands was insufficient to complete them. I was then very young, very poor, and very much in love. I had been for about a year the pupil of Cornelius, though I was absent when this accident took place. On my return, my friends implored me not to return to the alchemist's abode. I trembled as I listened to the dire tale they told and when Cornelius came and offered me a purse of gold if I would remain under his roof, I felt as if Satan himself tempted me. I ran off, as fast as my trembling knees would permit. My failing steps were directed whither for two years they had every evening been attracted. A gentle, bubbling spring, beside which lingered a dark-haired girl whose beaming eyes were fixed on the path I was accustomed each night to tread. I cannot remember the hour when I did not love Bertha. We had been neighbours and playmates from infancy. In an evil hour, a malignant fever carried off both her father and mother and Bertha became an orphan. She would have found a home beneath my paternal roof, but unfortunately the old lady of the near castle, rich, childless and solitary, declared her intention to adopt her. Henceforth Bertha was clad in silk, inhabited a marble palace, and was looked on as being highly favoured by fortune. Bertha remained true to the friend of her humbler days. She often visited the cottage of my father, and when forbidden to go thither, she would stray towards the neighbouring wood and meet me beside its shady fountain. She often declared that she owed no duty to her new protectress, equal in sanctity to that which bound us. Yet still I was too poor to marry, and she grew weary of being tormented on my account. We met now after an absence, and she had been sorely beset while I was away. She complained bitterly and almost reproached me for being poor. I replied hastily, I am honest if I am poor. Were I not, I might soon become rich. This exclamation produced a thousand questions. I feared to shock her by owning the truth, but she drew it from me. And then, casting a look of disdain on me, she said, You pretend to love and you fear to face the devil for my sake. She dwelt on the magnitude of the reward that I should receive. Thus encouraged, I returned to accept the offers of the alchemist. A year passed away. I became possessed of no insignificant sum of money. In spite of the most painful vigilance, I had never detected the trace of a cloven foot nor was the studious silence of our abode ever disturbed by demoniac howls. I still continued my stolen interviews with Bertha, and hope dawned on me. Hope, but not perfect joy. Bertha slighted me in a thousand ways, yet would never acknowledge herself to be in the wrong. She would drive me mad with anger and then force me to beg her pardon." Sometimes she fancied that I was not sufficiently submissive, and then she had some story of a rival, favoured by her protectress. On one occasion, the philosopher made such large demands upon my time that I was unable to meet her as I was wont. Bertha waited for me in vain at the fountain. Her haughty spirit fired at this neglect, and when at last I stole out during a few short minutes allotted to me for slumber, she received me with disdain. "'dismissed me in scorn and vowed that any man should possess her hand "'rather than he who could not be in two places at once for her sake. "'She would be revenged. "'And truly she was. "'In my dingy retreat, I heard that she had been hunting, "'attended by Albert Hoffer. "'Albert Hoffer was favoured by her protectress, "'and the three passed in cavalcade before my smoky window.' Jealousy, with all its venom and all its misery, entered my breast. Now I shed a torrent of tears to think that I should never call her mine. Yet, still I must stir the fires of the alchemist, still attend on the changes of his unintelligible medicines. Cornelius had watched his Alembics for three days and nights. The progress was slower than he expected, In spite of his anxiety, sleep waited upon his eyelids. Will another night pass before the work is accomplished? Windsor, you are vigilant. You have slept, my boy. Look at that glass vessel. The liquid it contains is of a soft rose colour. The moment it begins to change hue, awaken me. I scarcely heard the last words muttered as they were in sleep. Even then, he did not quite yield to nature. Winsy, my boy,' he again said, "'do not touch the vessel. "'Do not put it to your lips. "'It is a filter to cure love. "'You would not cease to love your bertha. "'Beware to drink.' "'And he slept. "'For a few minutes I watched the vessel. "'Then my thoughts wandered.' They visited the fountain and dwelt on a thousand charming scenes never to be renewed. Never. False, girl. False and cruel. Never more would she smile on me as that evening she smiled on Albert. She had smiled in disdain and triumph. She knew my wretchedness and her power. Yet what power had she? The power of exciting my hate... "'my utter scorn, my, oh, all but indifference. "'Could I attain that? "'Could I regard her with careless eyes, "'transferring my rejected love to one fairer and more true? "'That were indeed a victory.' "'A bright flash darted before my eyes. "'I had forgotten the medicine of the adept.' Flashes of admirable beauty glanced from the surface of the liquid. The vessel seemed one globe of living radiance, lovely to the eye and most inviting to the taste. The first thought, instinctively inspired by the grosser sense, was, I must drink. I raised the vessel to my lips. It will cure me of love, of torture. Already I had quaffed half of the most delicious liquor ever tasted by the palate of man when the philosopher stirred. I started. I dropped the glass. The fluid flamed and glanced along the floor while I felt Cornelius's gripe at my throat as he shrieked aloud, Wretch! You have destroyed the labour of my life! The philosopher was totally unaware that I had drunk any portion of his drug. His idea was that I had raised the vessel from curiosity, and that, at the flashes of intense light it gave forth, I had let it fall. I never undeceived him. The fire of the medicine was quenched. He grew calm, as a philosopher should under the heaviest trials, and dismissed me to rest. I will not attempt to describe the sleep of glory and bliss which bathed my soul during the remaining hours of that memorable night, or of the gladness that possessed my bosom when I woke. This it is, to be cured of love, I thought. I will see Bertha this day, and she will find her lover utterly indifferent to her. The hours danced away. The philosopher, secure that he had once succeeded, and believing that he might again— began to concoct the same medicine once more. He was shut up with his books and drugs, and I had a holiday. I hurried beyond the precincts of the town, joy in my soul, the beauty of heaven and earth around me. I turned my steps toward the castle. I could look on its lofty turrets with lightness of heart, for I was cured of love. My Bertha saw me afar off, "'as I came up the avenue. "'At the sight, she sprung with a light, fawn-like bound "'down the marble steps and was hastening towards me. "'But I had been perceived by another person. "'The old, high-born hag, "'who called herself her protectress and was her tyrant, "'had seen me also. "'She hobbled, panting up the terrace. "'Bertha clasped her hands. "'Her eyes were still bent on my approaching figure. "'I saw the contest.' How I abhorred the old crone who checked the kind impulses of my Bertha's softening heart. Hitherto, respect for her rank had caused me to avoid the Lady of the Castle. Now I disdained such trivial considerations. I was cured of love and lifted above all human fears. I hastened forwards and soon reached the terrace. How lovely Bertha looked! Her eyes, flashing fire. She was a thousand times more graceful and charming than ever. I no longer loved. Oh no. I adored. Worshipped. Idolised her. She had that morning been persecuted with more than usual vehemence to consent to an immediate marriage with my rival, "'She was threatened with being turned out of doors with disgrace and shame. "'Her proud spirit rose in arms at the threat, "'but when she remembered the scorn that she had heaped upon me "'and how, perhaps, she had thus lost one "'whom she now regarded as her only friend, "'she wept with remorse and rage. "'At that moment I appeared. "'Oh, Winsy! she exclaimed. "'Take me to your mother's cot!' Swiftly let me leave the detested luxuries and wretchedness of this noble dwelling. Take me to poverty and happiness. The old dame was speechless with fury and broke forth into invective only when we were far on the road to my natal cottage. My mother received the fair fugitive with tenderness and joy. My father, who loved her, welcomed her heartily. It was a day of rejoicing soon after I became the husband of Bertha. I ceased to be the scholar of Cornelius, but I continued his friend. I always felt grateful to him for having, unaware, procured me that delicious draught of a divine elixir, which, instead of curing me of love, had inspired me with courage and resolution, thus winning for me an inestimable treasure in my Bertha. The drink of Cornelius had not fulfilled the task for which he affirmed that it had been prepared, but its effects, were more potent and blissful than words can express. Bertha often wondered at my lightness of heart and unaccustomed gaiety, for before I had been rather serious or even sad in my disposition. She loved me the better for my cheerful temper, and our days were winged by joy. Five years afterwards, I was suddenly summoned to the bedside of the dying Cornelius. I found him stretched on his pallet, enfeebled even to death. All of life that yet remained animated his piercing eyes, and they were fixed on a glass vessel full of roseate liquid. "'Behold,' he said, in a broken and inward voice, "'the vanity of human wishes. "'A second time my hopes are about to be crowned, "'a second time they are destroyed. "'Look at that liquor. "'You may remember five years ago I had prepared the same, "'with the same success.' then, as now, my thirsting lips expected to taste the immortal elixir, you dashed it from me, and at present it is too late. I could not help saying, how, revered master, can a cure for love restore you to life? A faint smile gleamed across his face as I listened to his scarcely intelligible answer. A cure... For love and for all things. The elixir of immortality. Ah, if now I might drink, I should live forever. As he spoke, a golden flash gleamed from the fluid. He stretched forth his hand. A loud explosion startled me. A ray of fire shot up from the elixir, and the glass vessel which contained it was shivered to atoms. I turned my eyes towards a philosopher. He had fallen back. His eyes were glassy. He was dead. But I lived, and was to live forever. I reflected on the change I had felt in my frame, in my soul, the bounding elasticity of the one, the buoyant lightness of the other. I surveyed myself in a mirror. And could perceive no change in my features during the space of the five years which had elapsed. I was then immortal. A few days after, I laughed at my credulity. I respected Cornelius as a sage, but I derided the notion that he could command the powers of darkness. His science was simply human, and human science could never conquer nature's laws. He had brewed a soul-refreshing drink, more inebriating than wine, sweeter and more fragrant than any fruit. It possessed probably strong medicinal powers, imparting gladness to the heart and vigour to the limbs, but its effects would wear out. I was a lucky fellow to have quaffed health and joyous spirits, and perhaps a long life at my master's hands, but my good fortune ended there. Longevity was far different from immortality." I continued to entertain this belief for many years, yet it was certain that I retained a wonderfully youthful look. I was laughed at for my vanity in consulting the mirror so often, but I consulted it in vain. My brow was untrenched, my cheeks, my eyes, my whole person continued as untarnished as in my twentieth year. I was troubled. I looked at the faded beauty of Bertha. "'I seemed more like her son. "'By degrees our neighbours began to make similar observations, "'and I found at last that I went by the name of the Scholar Bewitched. "'Bertha became jealous and peevish, "'and at length she began to question me. "'We had no children. "'We were all in all to each other, "'and though as she grew older her vivacious spirit "'became a little allied to ill-temper "'and her beauty sadly diminished.' I cherished her in my heart as the wife I had sought and won with such perfect love. Our situation became intolerable. Bertha was fifty, I twenty years of age. I had, in very shame, adopted the habits of advanced age. I no longer mingled in the dance among the young and gay, but my heart bounded along with them while I restrained my feet. We were universally shunned. I was reported to have kept up an iniquitous acquaintance with some of my former master's supposed friends. I was regarded with horror and detestation. We sat by our lone fireside, the old-hearted youth and his antiquated wife. Again Bertha insisted on knowing the truth. She described how much more comely grey hairs were than my chestnut locks, she descanted on the reverence and respect due to age. At length, she insinuated that I must share my secret with her and bestow on her like benefits to those I myself enjoyed, or she would denounce me. And then she burst into tears. Thus beset, methought it was the best way to tell the truth. I revealed it as tenderly as I could and spoke only of a very long life, not of immortality, which representation, indeed, coincided best with my own ideas. When I ended, I rose and said, Bertha, it is too hard that you should suffer for my ill luck and the accursed arts of Cornelius. I will leave you. You have wealth enough, and friends will return in my absence. Young and strong as I am, I can work and gain my bread among strangers, unsuspected and unknown. I loved you in youth. God is my witness that I would not desert you in age, but that your safety and happiness require it. I took my cap, and moved toward the door. In a moment, Bertha's arms were round my neck. No, my husband, my Winsy, she said. You shall not go alone. Take me with you. We will remove from this place, and among strangers we shall be safe. I am not so old as quite to shame you, and I dare say the charm will soon wear off, and, with the blessing of God, you will become more elderly-looking, as is fitting. You shall not leave me. The next day we prepared secretly for our emigration, and without saying adieu to anyone, quitted our native country to take refuge in a remote part of Western France. It was a cruel thing to transport poor Bertha from her native village and the friends of her youth to a new country, new language, New customs. Away from all tell-tale chroniclers, she sought to decrease the apparent disparity of our ages by a thousand feminine arts, rouge, youthful dress, and assumed juvenility of manner. I could not be angry. Did I not myself wear a mask? Why quarrel with hers because it was less successful? I grieved deeply when I remembered that this was my Bertha whom I had loved so fondly, the dark-eyed, dark-haired girl with smiles of enchanting archness and a step like a fawn, this mincing, simpering, jealous old woman. I should have revered her grey locks and withered cheeks, but thus, it was my work, I knew, but I did not the less deplore this type of human weakness. Her jealousy never slept, Her chief occupation was to discover that, in spite of outward appearances, I was myself growing old. I verily believe that the poor soul loved me truly in her heart, but never had woman so tormenting a mode of displaying fondness. She would discern wrinkles in my face and decrepitude in my walk while I bounded along in youthful vigour the youngest-looking of twenty youths. Her constant discourse among her acquaintances was that though I looked young, there was ruin at work within my frame, and she affirmed that the worst symptom about me was my apparent health. Her warnings chimed in with my never-ceasing speculations concerning my state, and I took an earnest, though painful, interest in listening to all that her quick wit and excited imagination could say on the subject. We lived on for many long years— Bertha became bedrid and paralytic. I nursed her as a mother might a child. She grew peevish and harped upon one string of how long I should survive her. It has ever been a source of consolation to me that I performed my duty scrupulously towards her. She had been mine in youth, she was mine in age, and at last, when I heaped the sod over her corpse, I wept to feel that I had lost all that really bound me to humanity. Since then, how many have been my cares and woes? How few and empty my enjoyments? I have no beacon except the hope of death. Death! Why alone of all mortals have you cast me from your sheltering fold? Am I immortal? I return to my first question. In the first place, is it not more probable that the beverage of the alchemist was fraught rather with longevity than eternal life? Such is my hope. And then be it remembered that I only drank half of the potion prepared by him. To have drained half the elixir of immortality is but to be half immortal. My forever is thus truncated and null. But again... "'Who shall number the years of the half of eternity? "'I often try to imagine by what rule the infinite may be divided. "'Sometimes I fancy age advancing upon me. "'One grey hair have I found. fool. "'Do I lament? "'Yes. "'The fear of age and death often creeps coldly into my heart, "'and the more I live, the more I dread death.' even while I abhor life. Such an enigma is man, born to perish when he wars as I do against the established laws of his nature. But for this anomaly of feeling, surely I might die. The medicines of the alchemist would not be proof against fire, sword and the strangling waters. I have gazed upon the blue depths of many a placid lake, and the tumultuous rushing of many a mighty river, and have said, Peace inhabits those waters. Yet I have turned my steps away, to live yet another day. I have asked myself whether suicide would be a crime, in one to whom thus only the portals of the other world could be opened. I have done all, except presenting myself as a soldier or duellist, an objection of destruction to my... No, not to my fellow mortals, and therefore I have shrunk away. They are not my fellows. The inextinguishable power of life in my frame and their ephemeral existence places as wide as the poles asunder. I could not raise a hand against the meanest or the most powerful among them. This very day I conceived a design by which I may end all without self-slaughter, without making another man a cane. An expedition, which mortal frame can never survive, even endued with the youth and strength that inhabits mine. Thus I shall put my immortality to the test, and rest for ever. Or return, the wonder and benefactor of the human species. Before I go, a miserable vanity has caused me to pen these pages. I would not die and leave no name behind. Three centuries have passed since I quaffed the fatal beverage. Another year shall not elapse before, encountering gigantic dangers beset by frost, famine, toil and tempest. I yield this body, too tenacious a cage for a soul which thirsts for freedom, to the destructive elements of air and water Or, if I survive, my name shall be recorded as one of the most famous among the Sons of Men. And, my task achieved, I shall adopt more resolute means, and by scattering and annihilating the atoms that compose my frame, set at liberty, the life imprisoned within, and so cruelly prevented from soaring from this dim earth to a sphere more congenial to its immortal essence. Sean Dooley was reading The Mortal Immortal by Mary Shelley, which was made for Radio 4 Extra in 2005, back when it was still BBC 7. Those were the days. The producer was Gemma Jenkins. And at the same time next week, we'll have a short story.